this week on the Backtable podcast. You're basically having to go really quick and suctioning so you can get a glimpse of where you need to direct your scope, which is one of the reasons why I decided to have a proximal to distal light source on that, on that V-scope, because you know, I've been burnt so many times with using other devices and going blind that I thought, well, if we could shine that light down the side wall and down the lumen, even if that blood sort of like came up the tube, if I suctioned it back out, will I still have enough light to see the target? And the answer is yes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. I'm your guest host, Eric Gantworker, pediatric otolaryngologist in academic practice in New York. Here we talk about physicians and entrepreneurs innovating in the digital health space. And today we have the honor of Nelish Vassan uh, with us today and fellow otolaryngologist. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thank you very much for the kind invitation. Of course. So how would you describe yourself to somebody who isn't a doctor and doesn't know anything what you do? Well, I'll, firstly, I'll say I'm born and bred in New Zealand, which explains my accent. And so you don't need to have something like Google Translate to basically understand what I'm saying. But I'm an ear, nose and throat surgeon, medical school, trained in New Zealand and ended up in Oklahoma City and faculty here, specialized in head and neck and here with my wife and two boys. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what sort of got you to the point of being interested in ENT in the first place? So my interest initially was orthopedic surgery, for whatever strange reason. And I think it was that, that sort of carpentry and making use of very sort of heavy tools that got me interested in that. And then one of my classmates back in New Zealand, he did a selective in ENT. And funny enough, he became the orthopedic surgeon and I did mine in orthopedics and I became the ENT guy. So we sort of crossed paths. And you know, one of the things about making up my mind was unlike, you know, what usually happens in places like the Commonwealth where you sort of graduate and then you specialize by doing some rotations, I actually came up with the decision to follow the ear, nose and throat path in my last year of medical school, which is like typically what happens in the United States. They've got to somehow make a decision, even though they've not experienced everything, and then just, you know, roll with it. So in my final year, I sort of figured out, hey, maybe orthopedics is not quite for me. And then met some very cool ENT people because we were all cool and they're all sort of pretty laid back and they're all quite helpful. And, and I think that has a, that plays a major influence in your decision making. For sure. So you, you followed the Mike Rudder, uh, New Zealand, going into orthopedics, going into ENT path. Well, yeah. Well, I know Mike fairly well. You know, he graduated the year I entered the program. So we all met up at a conference and he was giving a talk about, you know, his experience as an ENT. And there I was just about to enter. That's so funny. It is. Yes. You can't, you can't miss them with his Hawaiian shirts and stuff. I know. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> also a fellow, a fellow entrepreneur. We had him on the show, actually. So you'll be the second ENT from New Zealand on the show. Oh, cool. So you went to training in New Zealand. You trained in otolaryngology. And then sort of what was that next step for you? And, and what brought you to, of all places, Oklahoma? Well, my wife is actually from the US. And after we got married, we lived in New Zealand for about six years. And I think, you know, subtly, psychologically at night, she must have been whispering in my ear, you're going to go to the States or something. And ultimately, when it came down to a decision to specialize in head and neck, you know, the only, I think, in, in my opinion, places to really train were in the United States with, you know, an American, you know, head and neck society type fellowship. And cut a long story short, by it's, uh, more fate than anything else, I ended up in Oklahoma City with Jesus Medina, who took a gamble on me. 
And then after I left him to go into private practice, he he sort of worked the slow game and lured me back. So, <laughs> so yes, I've been in Oklahoma City as faculty since 2008. That's crazy. So as you sort of transitioned from private practice into sort of an academic, was that a tough transition for you or was that sort of second nature? No, it would have been tough if I had hung on into the private sector. The one thing that I think most people, maybe we can talk about this later, is your volume of cases. So I, I was doing head and neck in the private sector and I, and I had residents and, and things too. And, uh, you know, we're doing composite resections, all the things that you would think about that a head and neck surgeon would undertake. But the volume wasn't there. And I thought, well, you know, after a number of years, my skill set's probably going to deteriorate. And then you probably feel less comfortable and confident in tackling these cases. And I thought, well, at, at some point, you know, you, you're either going to go continue down that line and probably forego those operations, really complex ones, especially if you don't have the multidisciplinary team with you when you need them, or make the jump into a faculty practice where everyone, the resources are there, the setup for performing those operations and, and the actual management of those patients in the long term. So I think everything sort of transpired at the right time back in 2008, except for the recession. Note to anyone that's listening, try not to move during a recession. I moved during COVID. It was even better. Oh, good grief. <laughs> well, that's that's a whole other story as well that we'll probably touch on. But yes, uh, you know, Dr. Medina became, you know, he was my mentor and obviously became a very good friend. And we've always stayed in touch over the years. And Oklahoma has always had a special place in my heart. I remember having uh, the interviews. It was, it's a long story, but the quick scenario was that I was looking and, you know, since I wasn't a, a citizen and, and from a medical school in the States, I, I had to go off the match. I was meant to like take this position in Florida, which didn't transpire. But the guy called me up and he goes, you need to speak to this guy, Ashok Shahar Memorial, and, and he'll tell you what's what. So I rang this guy and he goes, oh, Nalash, you know, there's only three places. You've got A, B, and C. I suggest you just go over there and visit them. And, and I visited two and I had my third one over the telephone with uh, Dr. Medina. I think he was talking to me while he was operating because <laughs> every so often he would say, stop, stop. Were you talking to me? No, no, no. I was talking to somebody else. And so, oh my God. So I had this phone phone interview with Dr. Medina, and he asked me all the right questions. I think I must have impressed him somehow because I wasn't face-to-face. -face. And, you know, he hired me, and, and the rest is history. That's incredible. So you're now doing a fellowship working in Oklahoma, and you start getting ideas, you know, some of these entrepreneurial ideas. And so take us through that process. Oh, sure. You know, I think as physicians, we all have ideas. The question is whether or not you act on it. And I had ideas in medical school, and I remember because depending on who you talk to, those are the, the people that could either make or break you, you know, in terms of like encouraging you to pursue ideas or just encouraging you that you're on the right path, the way to like think outside of the box. And then perhaps later you might come up with an idea that actually might, you know, fly. So I still remember when I was interested in orthopedics, I was wondering about the issues of hip fractures, for example, and, and you know, why you put these prostheses in. But eventually, you'll have to replace them due to all these fractures that you might get. And it was crazy. I was a medical student, you know, really dumb. And I thought, well, why can't they just have something like a suspension mechanism like you have in your, your car or something like that? I just sort of spent like a day just drawing out all these pictures and stuff. And I went to this orthopedic surgeon and he just raised his eyebrows and said, my God, are you, you're one crazy fella. You know, <laughs> disparaged the whole idea. And I felt quite deflated after that. And then I didn't really give it a, a shot until... Later, when I had a little bit of time on my hands, you know, experienced a lot of different things and ear, nose, and throat, complex problems. 
And I started coming up with ideas and, you know, jotting them down. And interestingly enough, I really, I didn't do that in any of my ear, nose and throat training. I did it when I was in private practice. And, you know, maybe one afternoon or on a weekend, something would like light up in terms of an idea. And I had the wherewithal to write everything, you know, sketch diagrams, and then most importantly, have it notarized because it gives you a timestamp, which might play into like when you sort of get ideas in university versus outside of it. So I came up with a few ideas, a few for sporting equipment too. That's awesome. <laughs> that didn't fly at all because I sort of sucked at a lot of sports and I thought, well, maybe this would make me, you know, perform a bit better. Regardless, it was all in the same magazine and, and I sent it to a, an attorney up in the Northeast when I was up there and he was really kind as well. He said, you know, all your ideas are rubbish except for this one. And I thought, which one's that? And he goes, oh, this medical device thing where you try to help people breathe. I said, oh, well, I suppose that's something. And I didn't do anything with it until, you know, I got back to Oklahoma and finally you raised enough reserves to maybe take a risk. Yeah. It's such an important thing too. And we'll talk about this in a second because, you know, when you when you gave our grand rounds, you specifically talked about the day one agreement. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But, you know, what gave you the foresight to know, I need to sketch this out. I need to write this down. I need to get this notarized. Yeah. Like I said, you know, I've been aware of how some of the ideas and, and no means am I an expert. I'm, I'm truly novice. You know, right now, you know, people do MBAs and they go through, of course, I'm living my MBA by the hard yards, by making mistakes and, and occasionally getting a win. But at the end, I thought, well, you know, the, the whole thing about the idea is that there's a chance that it may become patentable. And for a, a patent to occur, you, you've got to have a time where you might have actually come up with the idea. And you don't want to make it public. It sounds not very nice, but if you make it public, you can't really patent anything because it's in the it's a public domain. So I knew that much. And so I sketched out all my ideas, not just because I wanted to put everything down, but I thought I might forget. And then with time, maybe make some additions to those ideas and then come up with a maybe a workable concept. And when I look back and I still got that old composition handbook, like, you know, you get for 50 cents or something at Staples and I still have it and I've got all these ideas in it. But this is the one that actually turned into a company, the airway device. And the reason why I came up with that is because I'd seen so many people struggle with airways or potentially lose them. And then the morbidity, the mortality associated with it. Whereas if we're around, they might ask us to assist or be there from the very beginning. And just using our tools made it so much easier, I thought. But hang on. Okay, you guys, you're going to try taking on this case. You're going to use what devices and tools that you've got. And, you know, sometimes it works out, but oftentimes it doesn't. And then they might ask us, you just, you know, stand back and they, they look at you. And then you have to do your thing. And it's either going to be like a cryo and a wake trach, or you use your anterior commissioscope to get access to the airway and pass a bougie down there. And I thought, well, that seems relatively straightforward, even in cases where people think it's near impossible. So if I can do it and everybody in ear, nose and throat can do it, why can't people outside of our field have that opportunity? And, and that was the impetus to make, say, essentially a self-contained, you know, battery powered device that you can keep in your pocket and you don't have to be in the operating room. Yeah, for sure. And uh, for those who aren't ENTs, what does an anterior commissioscope do? Well, an anterior commissioscope is a metal device. It, it was actually the first true direct laryngoscope, if you think about it. But it's an enclosed barrel, and it's got a flanged open end. And ear, nose, and throat surgeons uh, essentially use that device for diagnostic laryngoscopy, assessment of tumors, taking biopsies to make a diagnosis, or mapping out certain lesions within the larynx or pharynx before we, you know, we engage in some sort of therapeutic management plan. 
And um, it's it's a bread and butter of ENT. You know, direct laryngoscopes of that design have been part and parcel of ear, nose, and throat since it's the field's inception. And the one thing about the device that we came up with, it's actually mirrors Chevalier Jackson's anterior comboscope from 1925. You know, it's it's not like an ultra fancy device with a monitor and all these bells and whistles. It's a really simple tool to be used in incredibly complex situations. Yeah. Because the, the more complex it is, sometimes that you, you fall over yourself just dealing with that as opposed to managing the problem. It's, and that's essentially how it was born. Yeah. And, and you're right. You know, as, as ENTs, especially when we get called for airway emergencies, it's always the question, and you brought this up in the grand rounds, was do I have more skill or just do I have more tools or do I know how to use them better? And so, you know, the anterior scope has saved me many a times in some difficult airways, which is sort of where it's really opportune. But was there a specific patient case or specific moment you remember, like, I have to do this? I think I had a series of patients, and I can't remember where now, but all over the place. I've been practicing for 25 years now, and it leaves an impression, not a good one, in terms of dealing with these patients. And you don't forget. And then you have to ask yourself, what could you have done better? What could you have done to make this a difference and, and not turn the situation into a complete cluster? And it's not just us, I think, coming into a case, but even when we are asked to assist. So I've had patients, you know, who in the emergency room or up on the floor, my colleagues in the other room have a difficult intubation. All of a sudden it's traumatized, it's bleeding, they lose the airway, they've got this can't intubate, can't oxygenate sort of scenario. They're, they're pushing all sorts of panic buttons. And, and, you, and you do what you do, you, you roll in there to sort of assist them. And then you use your anterior combustoscope because, you know, we, we can use the left hand and the right hand. We've got no dogma. You can use the left side of the mouth, for example. We've got a lot more versatility, I think, and we're not bound by certain, I think, artificial rules. So we make it get to the airway, and then we just have to do a cell dinger technique because it's much easier to pass a five millimeter bougie than a size seven endotracheal tube, right? And hundred percent, right? And then you can nail the airway, and you usually save the day. And a lot of people know that Eric is like one of the first places that utilize the scope is John Hopkins. They developed their difficult airway response team, the DART, and they put the metal anterior commercial scope with the light box and cable on their cards. And, you know, and it's Dr. Barty and his team over there that brought that on and they've researched it. And that knocked down out of OR crikes by, you know, over 50% just by having otolaryngologists involved in airway management in the hospital. And I thought, well, you think about that. What would our paramedic colleagues, uh, respiratory therapists, CRNAs, Small rural hospitals on the outskirts of Oklahoma that may not just have, you know, a video laryngoscope in every OR or in the recovery room, you know, they, they have budget constraints. So there's lots of different groups internationally and even in the United States that I think could benefit from different methods of accessing the airway. Yeah. We're going to talk about pre-hospital and sort of the market for your device and specifically why you chose pre-hospital in a second. But I, I want to take you back to that moment where you had the idea, you sketched it in your notebook, you got it notarized, you sent it to this guy. This guy said, I like this idea. All the other ones are crap. What's your next step? What, what did you tangibly do after that conversation? I did nothing, which I think is typical of any like physician entrepreneur. I'm not talking entrepreneurs. Like, I think you meet a lot of different people. And the wonderful thing about entrepreneurship in general is that you just meet a whole different group of people in all different spaces, you know, in terms of like, tech or whatever it may be. And generally speaking, everyone's ultra helpful. Then the one thing that entrepreneurs have to go do is fundraise generally. And that's the rate limiting step. 
And at that stage, I was coming over, you know, young family, and I had no idea about the fundraising aspect of it. And, and then I made a mistake too, because once I started getting up here in, into Oklahoma and had some funds, I did start the patent process in earnest. So it's only once I got here, I got settled, and I thought, you know, hey, that idea that I had many years ago, maybe it's the time to act on it. And, and I delayed it by a while because I thought, you got to have a patent first before you, know, you can actually like, talk to people and do anything or make a prototype and have that proof of concept where you can like, show it around. And it was actually a device rep over here who kept on asking me about it. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I haven't done anything. You know, have, you, have you submitted your patent application and this, that, and the other? And I go, yes. He goes, you're just wasting time. You know, <laughs> it, it's going to take years. And you're just sitting around. Whereas right now, while that's going through that process, you could like start thinking about building your deal and refining it. And then you don't have to like waste more of your patent period after getting a patent, which was like really sage advice because I had five office actions for my first one. I had an incredibly hard patent examiner who, even with my New Zealand charm, couldn't win her over. And, uh, and it took a long time, but in a roundabout sort of way, and maybe I just do this to make myself feel better, she helped me because you know she was like finding all these holes. And, and one thing that people have to understand with the patent office, whenever you have a novel idea, and you submit your claims, all the things that make your idea different, the patent examiner will conjure up a bunch of different patents and say, hey, buddy, I put these five patents together, I get your idea. Come on, it's not novel at all. And then you have to go like an attorney, because you've got the medical background, and read all those patents and basically say, no, it's not like that at all, because you know, patent A says this and ours says that, and it's a long deal that costs a lot of money. And the other thing that people need to realize is that you get what you pay for when it comes to patent attorneys. And I used a top firm. That's all they do is they specialize in patents and have a, a group of people with medical device background. And they help you, but they don't really know the, the crux or the intricacies of your own device. And, and you're teaching them while they're teaching you. And you've got to have a really good relationship with those people. So I got that process going. And you can imagine the amount of money that you burn through and I took that other fellow's advice and I started working on prototypes, you know, 3D printed prototypes. I was introduced to people like electricians or electronics people in Oklahoma City. They were kind enough to humor me by actually making this stuff. And we came up with some devices and the fundamental design, which still carries through to the final product today. And that's how we got the device and got it made so we could utilize it on a mannequin and show people. And by the time that sort of happened, a first patent came through, a utility patent. And up to this point, have you been bootstrapped? Or do you have other investors? Like, how did you fund this efforts? So I funded it myself for a long time. And, and the other thing is that you've got to have a very understanding spouse, uh, <laughs> right? Because I've got a very understanding wife, and, and she understood that I had this like passion. And I don't think she quite sort of saw that it might have potential, and she probably still thinks that way, but we'll see. Uh, but you want to make a difference. Ultimately, the whole idea behind this company is, I don't want patients to suffocate to death. That's pretty much it. And I don't want them to suffocate on the street, in a hospital, on the floor, or anywhere where someone could potentially lose their airway. And when I first came up with the design with the team, which developed after a while, you know, I thought, well, this device is like, I think, ideal for military, like special forces or whoever, because those guys have to run in small teams and they have to carry their own laryngoscopes. And if their own you know, colleagues go down, they have to know how to do everything. 
And then I thought, well, I, I can't even imagine that. What, what sort of scenario would you be in, in, you know, potentially a conflict zone and having a horrific maybe head and neck injuries or whatever and still, you know, hopefully being able to nail it? And I thought, well, we better build this device in case if it goes down that route, it could withstand all the beatings that it's going to get, you know, dropped from great heights, submerged for long periods, all, all that sort of stuff, which is what we did. In fact, my co-founder, uh, Paul Hagen, who started off on this journey with me and who's my guy on the ground uh, 24-7, made some videos where he runs over one of them with a you know, fire truck and then uses it afterwards. And, and it still works. At the end of the day, we're thinking ahead. The last thing I want to have ever happen is device failure. You know, and sometimes you, you have devices that are really expensive. It doesn't work. You're in a hospital. You just get another one. But if, if you're out in the street, you, you might not have that luxury. So there's a long line of things we had to get right before getting this out on the market. And design is one thing, manufacturing partner, and then having all that happen requires money. So getting back to your question of bootstrapping, yeah, that's what we did. Initially, it was my wife and I that funded everything. And, and we got to a point after obtaining some patents, the device, the prototype, and in fact, going to an EMS conference with my colleague and co-founder, Paul who basically on a phone call, and I was introduced to him, he goes, well, you seem to have a really cool idea. Why don't I just come to like this conference with you and, and we'll try out this prototype with all the folks here and we'll see what happens. And we had this awesome response. And he goes, man, I'm in. Yeah, he saw the response, right? <laughs> he saw the response. You know, that's how it's the proof of concept, right? Yeah. You know, and, and you know, the, these booths that you have to purchase, the, the flights, everything all costs money. And a lot of times people don't want to do that. And that sort of nixes the idea there and then. But I, I took the risk and, and we both went down and, and it was wonderful to see people's responses. You could tell the people that are sort of a little bit stunned because at the end, they may have lost somebody. And then they think to themselves, man, if I just had this thing, maybe I wouldn't have. A thousand percent. So as you go through that and you have this proof of concept, you did a 3D printed, you know, now as you think about scaling and you think about funding, you know, there's so many roads that people can go down, right? They can go down the angel investor, the VC funding. We can go down the SBIR. They can even go the academic route. They can go an incubator route. What, what sort of other avenues did you investigate before you sort of finally decided how you were going to fund your, your entrepreneurial effort? Well, you know, the, the whole thing about the United States is that there are certain areas that are, well, way more mature uh, than others. And, and I think the majority of places for health sciences are on the east and west coast. And maybe even down in Texas and Dallas and Austin, where, where a lot of people have set up shop. And you have a certain group of people that are familiar with you know, medical devices or you know, biotech, pharma, or all these other different areas. And I was in Oklahoma. And, and the one thing I did do, with credit to them, is become associated with an incubator here. I think we've only got one. And, and they gave me an education learning about how you might raise your pitch deck, uh, how you might present your idea to other people and things like that. And I, I still connected with them, but you know, I, I never received or asked them for any funding. Uh, you know, They have term sheets and you have to become a little bit of an attorney yourself to figure out what sort of deal that you might be getting yourself into. But one of the things that they'd organized, which was really funny in retrospect, was a, a pitch competition here in Oklahoma City. And they said, oh, we would like you to like talk about your stuff. And, and we've got like these two other guys. So front up, there was this wonderful like venue. And I'm sitting at the table. And one guy had this idea, which was a bit like pin interest. And then this other fella had this Pandora type thing. And, and I'm sitting there. 
And these guys, they go, and they, they both said to me, man, we feel really bad sitting next to you because look, we just come up with like music and crap and you've developed this thing that might <laughs> might like save someone's life. And, and we're sort of sitting and we're all chatting and, and, and I had the first presentation, I gave it and then the other two did. And there must have been like, I don't know, maybe 200 people in the room. I, I might be over-exaggerating, but it was a lot of people. They all flocked to these other two guys and only two people came up to me. And, oh one was a, and one was a nurse, and she goes, I like your idea, good luck. And, and this other fella, he goes, um, you might have something. <laughs> <laughs> Pseudo-validation, pseudo right? Uh, well, well, you know, and meanwhile, these other two fellas are being swamped. It's like some sort of rock concert, and they're just walking out onto the street and getting mobbed. Because people are thinking, hey, these guys are going to be the next Google or, or whatever it may be. And, and they're thinking, that that's where I've got to invest my money. And, and, I, and I don't blame them because of the rapid fire trajectory that a lot of these tech companies have. You know, that's, but for the health sciences thing, you need people that have previous experience. Usually they understand it's a long game that you have to play. It, it might take years and because you're dealing with physicians. And, um, you know, if you ever look at the adoption curve, the physicians are right at the very end on the right. Late adopters. They are <laughs> They're beyond <lights>. the late, <laughs> right. The, the, beyond that. And, and I didn't quite realize that until, you know, I read Jeffrey Moore's book, you know, you know Crossing the Chasm. And, and if, if anyone wants to read uh, that book, that, that's fantastic. It gives you a really good idea of how things might work in tech, but it's applicable to any idea that you might sort of start up on. So after I got that initial prototype out and I connected with Paul, Paul and I set about refining things. And Paul was based in Seattle at that time. And, and I think that that was good fortune as well as good management because he, he had a lot of mentors and associates there that he was bouncing ideas off of. And, and eventually, one of his associates said, well, when are you going to ask me to invest in this company? Because he, he was a design guy and, and also was instrumental in the development of the Sonicare toothbrush. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and he had that background and he, plus he had all the manufacturing contacts. And so our, our V-scope is actually made by the people that made the Sonicare toothbrush. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. So, you know, all these concentric circles are getting tighter and tighter. And, and they introduced us to their design team based up in Seattle. That's Workshop 16 with Jed McCann. And he's an awesome guy because we were doing all of this online, having these um, evening, you know, Zoom type calls, looking at SolidWorks and trying to like refine the design. He'll send us a prototype. And eventually, we, we got to a point where we could produce it. And the only ISO facility that could do that was based in Indonesia. And Paul went over there and spent a week with the manufacturers to refine that device and, and just iron out all the little kinks in it and, and made it the device that it is today. There's certain standards for laryngoscopes and you know it's got to withstand 15 kgs and we made ours withstand 30. Yeah, there's all these extra things that we wanted to sort of make bulletproof and and, and that's essentially how it, it took off. You know, we got to a certain point that you just have your head above water that somebody can see it. And then you can put your arm out and then they can grab you and pull you onto the boat. And so that's our seed round it came from. And that gentleman up in Seattle had a syndicate of people that followed his lead. And that's where our original funding came from. We've had a, a few rounds, you know, family, friends and, and things like that. But we haven't gone VC. Yeah. And, it's, and this is still a private company. Is there a specific reason why you haven't or are you waiting 
till you get a little bit of market growth or what are you waiting for? Yeah, at the end of the day, there's there's a pros and cons of anything that that you might want to do. And And I think people are sort of sitting in the background, they're probably just wondering, you know, where's this company going? A lot of people like to sort of take their time before they might engage, but we know a lot of people. Ultimately, the device is a bit different. You know, the whole thing about Airway is that even though ENT are asked to come in infrequently, but at the worst possible times during a patient's airway issue, we, we don't hold ourselves out there as being the airway experts publicly. Even though maybe privately we know that we can handle pretty much everything, both in, in children and in adults. But it hasn't really been a thing up until the last few years. You know, academies this week in Nashville, and you know, usually now they might have two or three instruction courses on difficult airway management because our, our approach to airway is completely different, I think, than lots of other groups. You know, and I'll give you an example. When I started really getting into this and we were researching it, if, if I was to give you a patient, Eric, and I told you, hey, this guy has a tumor and you knew that ahead of time, I think 99% of the time you would have somehow done a flexible scope or something in the, in mm-hmm. the office and, and you would have an idea of strategy going into it. But you just think, you know, some of our anesthesia colleagues don't do that and they go on blind, right? And sometimes it's a surprise. You, you have to tell them, hey, listen, there's this tumor there on the right side. You know, I know you guys always pretty much go down the right side, but that blade's going to hit it and it's a friable tumor. You're going to make it bleed and then they'll make an adjustment or something like that. So what we did was we had a study where we thought we don't want to have any arguments with our colleagues. Let's get them on the same page as us. Let's scope these patients that are like relatively stable. They're, they're difficult airway, but stable in the holding area, and we'll all look at the monitor together. And we had a little template pro forma. And, you know, sometimes you see these massive base of tongue cancers or whatever, and, and our colleagues are looking at it, and, and they can't identify the anatomy. And, and, you know, the realization hits, you know, oh, okay, well, our tools are going to, like, dig into that mass. Right. We need to do something else. And that study showed that we had a 50% change in management. Holy cow. Right. It was a small study, but still, yeah. it was 50%. And the fiber optic skills, you know, it's, it's, the, the skill set there is like changing, I think, for lots of different reasons. So oftentimes, it's, it's my residents, myself, my fellow that are performing the fiber optic. Or we use the anterior commissioscope awake using some Presidex or something so they don't lose the airway. So there's a, there's a lot of you know give and take, and the one thing about our anesthesia colleagues, you know, they've come up with all these airway algorithms, but oftentimes based on the tools that they're comfortable with and have been taught to use. And then if you ever look, like I don't know if you've ever looked at these, but almost every country has its own airway algorithm. But if you look at the end, it's like oh things are like a mess now, so do anything you can, including rigid bronchoscopy. But I don't think hardly any anesthesiologists know how to perform rigid bronchoscopy, that, that's, that's us. Yeah, I've never seen anybody do that from anesthesia. Right, but it's, it's part of the protocol, and I'm not sure, but I don't think ENT people are everywhere to do that. And I, and I suppose our V-scope is a, like a miniature shortened bronchoscope. So, you know, at the end of the day, you just want a passage. And the adoption rate, we can talk about that if you like, in terms of dealing with different groups of people and what they think is normal versus what you think is, is makes for interesting conversation. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about the, the market, right? Because anybody who's innovated within ENT and you go to a VC and you say, I have this idea and like, what's the total addressable market? And you're like, yeah, about, about a thousand people. And like, mm, I'm not interested, right? So right. one of the things that you talked about was the idea of using this in pre-hospital and or military austere environments. 
Was that a deliberate decision from a market analysis, from a business, or was that more from a use case for what you were trying to develop? That was deliberate. You know, the, the one thing, and maybe I was wrong, but things sort of like went out of control a lot faster than I expected is we clearly identified EMS as our primary market because I can't imagine, you know, what they have to do. Everyone's just had a full meal and then they're involved in a car accident and they're strapped to their seat and they're losing their airway. What are you going to do? Right. And, and it's very different. See spine precautions and yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I can't even think of that. And I've been involved in some hairy situations too, but nothing like that. And I thought, well, could this device be accepted more easily, early adopters and EMS? And generally speaking, I think so. And it's not just in the United States. So if you talk about intubation, at least 55, 60 million people get intubated electively in the United States per year. And around about like 5 million might get intubated on the street, United States. So that's us. And what about the global market? So you just imagine, you know, there's some places that may not have the resources. You can, you know, think of those countries. And then there's other places, you know, Western Europe, for example, where they have everything too. But still, they have a lot of cases. And we know that there's a percentage where it's going to be not easy. How do you help those people? So it transitioned very quickly. So we focused on EMS for the first few years. The adoption was slower because one of the things about the V-Scope, for example, is that it's a two-phase deal and you had to put something on the teeth. So I know I'm speaking to an ear, nose and throat crowd and, and everyone's thinking, oh yeah, so what? But for other people that are not ENT, that's a huge deal. They, they have been indoctrinated to not put any laryngoscope on the front teeth or the gum. Otherwise, they're going to have their hand cut off or something. And right, it's, 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 it's totally against their fiber. And then with the advent of video laryngoscopy, they need to see the endotracheal tube pass between the vocal cords. So th these were the, the two pieces of feedback that we were getting that they couldn't get their head around initially. And we had to counter that. We had to counter that in, in person with discussion or by making videos. We've utilized, I think, social media. It's a small company, so we, we make these videos and we put them out there for every question that we might get or to counter the, the argument. And, and the, the reason why people don't want to use these um, laryngoscopes on, on their teeth is because they're designed to break teeth. You, know, you look at a Macintosh, it's metal and it's a right angle. And if you put any like backward pressure on the teeth, you're going to break them all. And, and that's why they push it, you know, cheers with your beers, you know, forward to, to sort of sweep the tongue anteriorly. And then you have the Macintosh, which is, you know, in the vellacular, whereas, you know, most of us use laryngoscopes like we use a Miller and, and elevate the, the epiglottis and, and, and see. And then lastly, when it came to the, the bougie, you know, why do you have to use the bougie? Well, it's easier to pass uh, than, say, a size 8 tube. And second, you don't have to have a grade one view to pass a bougie. You could probably see like 10, 15% of the glottic opening to pass a 15 French 5 millimeter bougie. That's why you do it. And, and then you can sort of, they can start thinking because they've never had this presented to them before. And, and now it takes time for them to warm up to that idea. Like the other thing, it's saying, well, you know, if you have to use this two-phase approach, you're wasting time. And then we'll say, well, if you're not intubating that person and they're trying to go blue and die, are you going to be like too worried about, you know, that two-phase deal in an extra 10 seconds? You know, and they're like, oh yeah, maybe you got a point. So it takes a while. And I think we've, down the road enough now, we're about six years, just over six years with the V-Scope, that people understand the concept. It's whether or not they take the chance to try it. And that's the other thing that we have to do, Eric, is 
we don't get people to pay when they're like for devices. We just send it to them for nothing, just so they can like figure it out for themselves. Right. Experience it for themselves. Yeah. And so for people who aren't familiar with what a bougie is, it's essentially a small tube that goes into the airway and then you can pass the endotracheal tube over the bougie into the airway. So, but you know, again, it's often used as a secondary measure. It's not usually a first line therapy, just like when the video laryngoscopes came out. They weren't first-line therapy. People were only using them when there were difficult airways. And so one of the things is just, it's a training gap, right? It's a training gap and you have to teach people like, no, we can actually use these in other settings and you don't necessarily have to wait until the patient's dire need to use this scope with a bougie, right? Correct. Correct. You know, there was a meta-analysis that just came out, I think it was from South America, that basically says that you should consider using the bougie for every intubation. And, and you say, oh, why would you do that? Well, you've got to be familiar with how to use it. So, you know, things really do turn to custard. You're familiar with how to like utilize the bushi and, and effectively, you know, insert it as opposed to like uh, in situations where you're panicking and now you're thinking about the bushi. The one thing that I've had on my travels, and, and you mentioned COVID earlier when you were like relocating, is that it changed the market significantly. And the one thing I always say to folks when they sort of like challenge us is, is that they get defensive and they think, oh, you're coming in with this device to like replace video. Uh, there's no way. <laughs> no no way are we trying to replace anything. Because I, I think as uh, ENT people in general, we approach airway like we approach an operation. You know, I, I like the fact that this podcast is called Backtable. Your Backtable should be full of stuff, certain tools and forceps and stuff. And, and then when you do your operation, you might select something from there to help you. Whereas right now, what's happening, there's a certain group of people who are video laryngoscopy advocates, and they're pushing to have video laryngoscopy used all the time for everything. And I like video laryngoscopy, and I use it too. But I wouldn't go so far as saying, use it for everything. And why would I say that? Because I think as surgeons, we have past experience going from, say, open procedures to laparoscopic procedures, open procedures to endoscopic sinus which is wonderful in terms of like patient outcomes. But if things go wrong, you might have to convert. And, and now we're finding there's a group of physicians that don't know how to do that. And, and now you're having a, a complication that's not addressed because they just went through their training without doing any open procedures, unable to handle that, that sort of situation. And, and you know the outcome could be bad. Whereas what I'm thinking is, okay, you've got your supraglottic device, you've got fiber optic, Miller, Mac, V-scope, anterior commissioscope, you're, you're scoutful, right? You've got, you've got all these things. And depending on the day and the, and the patient, you, you might use any one of those deals to, to secure that patient. So that's where I come from because, you know, as a, as a person that runs a business, you'd love everyone to use your own thing all the time, but that's a mistake. I, I don't want anyone to use the, the V-scope for like really simple cases. It makes no sense. But if they are familiar with it, they're going to recognize certain indications, certain scenarios and situations where that may give you the best chance of obtaining what they call first pass success, you know, nailing the airway on their first shot. Because if you don't get first pass success, the likelihood of patient complication increases significantly. Yeah, it's so interesting because you have to have all these tools in your armamentarium. I talk with the residents all the time that, you know, it's always good to know a bunch of different ways for doing things because also you don't know what's going to be at your next facility. So when I was in fellowship, we had something called a Shikani intubating stylet. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but essentially- I've heard of it. Yeah. So it was an awesome tool. I'd never seen it before in my entire life. We had a horrible airway and my fellowship director or my attending at the time was 
go get the Shikani. And I was like, I don't even know what this thing is. We opened it up. I didn't even know how to operate it. And we're in this, you know, in this scenario. And sure enough, so it's a, it's an intubating fiber optic stylet, which is right. incredible, right? It's a video stylet. So, you know, it saved us in that. But if I had never even known that existed, I didn't know how to use it. I didn't even use it ever. I wouldn't have known. And so from then on, when Fellow started, we oriented them and said, this is a Shikani. This is where we would use it. And then we would do it in like a simulated patient case so that they would know when to use it, how to use it. Yeah. You know, the, the thing about a lot of places, like you, you've got a pediatric otolaryngology background. So, you know, the one thing that frightens me the most is kids, kids' <laughs> airway. Airway in general, and I should have stipulated this at the beginning. I, I personally and, and get really anxious dealing with airway. You know, if, if I'm anxious, everyone else should be changing their pants. Right. Right. Exactly. Because, uh, right. Because cause you just know how bad this things could go pretty quick. And children, especially so, I, I'm, I'm ultra cautious, uh, you, you, know, you prepare, you want everything set up and, and ready to rock and roll. If we're called upon, say, on call or something like that, to deal with a, a pediatric airway issue. And, and I'm always surprised because, you know, they desaturate so quickly, you got to act fast. And, and sometimes even in adults, they've got no pulmonary reserve, they start to desaturate. And if you read a lot of these algorithms, they say, oh, you got to have two or three attempts, and then you might want to think about something else. Whereas I'm always thinking, you just got one shot. If you, right. if you've got, if, if you mess that up, you got to do something like, like now. You see, even even now, I've got I've got some pressure of speech just I thinking can, about. I can hear it. I can hear it. Yeah. Hear it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's because you're just reliving all those moments of. You know, I, I had a like a, an interesting patient a long time ago, and this is a video laryngoscope, and the person had an acute problem, and in addition, ileus with bowel obstruction, and, and they used the video laryngoscope and they intubated the esophagus, and all this gastric contents just came flooding out out of the ET tube, and we thought, oh my god, you know, you're in the wrong place, and they they pulled it out, and as soon as they put it back in there, uh, they couldn't see anything. You know, there was no camera, there was no light because the whole oral cavity was just full of gastric material. And so I had to do, for whatever reason, a direct laryngoscope exam on this person for other reasons. And I had it. And I was jumping up and down, give that to me. You know, I'm not as calm as Mike Rudder. And, and you know, <laughs> I, might have, I might have used colorful language and all sorts of things to impress upon people that this is like urgent. And, you know, grade one view, straight shot. And we, we did something akin to what they call uh, suction-assisted laryngoscopic airway decontamination. It's called salad. And, and there's a friend of ours, a guy called um, James Ducanto, and uh, he, he came up with this mannequin where you flood it and then you try to intubate it. And you have to like get a suction device and pack it in the hypopharynx or postcricoid area and then use your laryngoscope quickly to intubate. It's almost like tonsil bleeds. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, unless you've got one of your like residents or colleague got their finger on it, you, you're basically having to go really quick and suctioning so you can get a glimpse of, of where you need to direct your scope, which is one of the reasons why um, I decided to have a proximal to distal light source on that, on that V-scope because you know, I've been burnt so many times with using other devices and going blind that I thought, well, if we could shine that light down the sidewall and down the lumen, even if that blood sort of like came up the tube, if I suction that back out, will I still have enough light to see the target? And the answer is yes. That's so genius. Well, it, it, it's just experience and, and it's because it's a school of hard knocks. And, and fortunately, you know, I've never had anyone you know, succumb to anything like that. It all worked out, but you know, it takes a year or three of your life. My hair is actually all gray. It's because of, you're dealing with these scenarios. And, 
and people think I like it. I, I don't. <laughs> I, 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 I deal with it because I think as an ENT person, we have the wherewithal to make up a plan to secure the airway, which is a really tiny component of our entire field. And, and, and people sort of quite, can't quite realize that sometimes. You need to get that intubation right so you can do the laryngectomy. We've got a whole day ahead of us. It's the most terrifying too. It's, it's funny because we talked about Mike Rudder. Mike Rudder was on the show and trained under him for residency. And the way I approach pediatric airway problems is exactly how Mike Rudder told me. And it was, you come in jovial, you make humor, and uh, you lighten the mood. Because if you get afraid, you get scared, everybody else does. And your manner with your doing this and your confidence and your, your demeanor totally changes how everybody else operates in the room. And I credit Mike Rudder for teaching me how to manage those situations. And to this day, I still do it. And everybody knows if I get quiet, it's a problem because uh, I, I tend to talk a lot. But that was the same with Rudder. <laughs> if Rudder ever got quiet, you got a problem, right? And he never really gets quiet, right? So, Well, it, well maybe with the opposite. I can't remember which part of the island of New Zealand he's from. He's probably <laughs> for the more fancy part compared to me. But, but you know, he, he has a certain calmness about him that I can understand. Maybe in Oklahoma, they, if I was too nice, they, they wouldn't pay me any attention. But <laughs> at the end, the outcome is the same. But, you know, there is urgency. And, you know, I, I sometimes remember watching that. Uh, I'm, not too, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there was this woman who passed away in England by the name of Elaine Bromley. Uh, it was a tragic case of losing the airway. It happened in the UK, but they got Australian actors and they swapped genders of everybody to make a video about it. And, and I remember watching it. And if anybody listening, you can find it on, on the net. And everyone's saying, thank you. Can you pass me the laryngoscope? Oh, thank you very much. And, <laughs> and I think, and I was just screaming, get me that, you know, whatever. And like, let's, let's move. You're wasting time. Let's rock and roll. This, this is one shot. Just do it. And if you ever watch that video, uh, it, it eats you up uh, on the inside because you know what needs to be done. But the folks that were in that situation, obviously, were waiting for each other to take the lead. And, and, and that's, I think, I think that's one thing about airway management, which is really interesting in the hospital. So going back to your first, one of your questions about addressable market, very quickly, we, we got into emergency medicine, anesthesia, all these different groups, both here in the United States and overseas. And I was worried that we're spreading a bit too quick. And how do you like deal with that? And then the one thing is you've got to have really good distributor partners. And we identified that one of the other people that's involved with us is a fellow called Claude Nunlist. He's our director of international sales. He has a Rolodex that's pretty, pretty thick if people remember what a Rolodex is. Mm-hmm. And and he contacted all his you know colleagues that he had done you know business with in the past, and introduced them to our product. And and, and oh, wow. you know, many of them just you know became stocking distributors and and understood what what we were trying to sort of promote. You know, it took a bit of work. You you can't just tell people, oh, this is a V scope, and you you use it like this. You have to show them on a mannequin and and give them some scenarios as to you know how it could be of use to them. Yeah, we're going to talk in a second about sort of the future of the V-Scope and, and Adroid Surgical. I want to really quick take a, a short time back. Nobody comes with one idea that autom- automatically becomes a company, becomes viable, starts generating revenue. What are some of the failed ideas and things that you learned about? Because you had talked about them during the grand rounds about some of the things that didn't work out that you actually took some steps towards actually developing. Yeah, you know, I'm also the program director here. And one of the things that I 
was concerning me a lot was um, all these work hour stipulations. And I thought, man, we basically have to trust our residents to get this down right. And if they forget, well, you know, worse, they make things up, you know, it's not right. You know, could we come up with some sort of application that could like make it really easy and could potentially notify them of work hour violations and making changes to how they might run their week or their day or whatever it may be. And, and there was a little software idea. And, and, you know, we came up with that. And, and eventually we funded that ourselves as myself and some other folks. And at, at the end, the money, drew, you know, dried up because it, it didn't have, you know, it had a couple of like physician folks that came in with us, but it, it just sort of died. And you, you got to have the, the whole team be motivated to continue to push things on. And, and if you try to push things on yourself or somebody else does and, and you, your priorities change, things can languish. There's a software that's sort of sitting there, nearly done. It's just, I suppose we just have to sort of get off our butts and, and do it because we went through the processes of like showing people, other colleagues around the country, and the feedback was excellent. They go, oh yeah, you could like put this on your iPhone and and you have these geofences for the campus and you know that these guys are in there and yeah, we could we could do all of that. And and so, you know, that was one one particular idea that that didn't quite, you know, fly. But this other deal, Adroit, was is a really tiny team. And and the thing that I think propelled it forward is having skin in the game, putting your own money to get it to a point where other people will think, oh, hang on, he, he might be onto something. He, he's got the vision and the passion, and he has something that is not like two way out there. This is actually a technique that everybody uses. It's nothing clever about it. It's just a, a modification of an old tool. People jumped on board. And, and the funny thing is, as soon as we came out with that, people started immediately asking us, where's your pediatric device? I said, what? He said, well, this is cool, but we really want something for Pete's. And, you know, and we had to get to a certain point before we started thinking about, hey, how could we come up with a, a pediatric? So two years ago, we started on that process and we just released, you know, the, the baby V. Oh, that's awesome. Which, which, which is a, you know, modified Parsons 3, which is another get out of jail device that we use. Oh, that's awesome. Have you gone through the process with FDA and everything with this or how does that work? Yeah. So these are class one products. You know, we have three and variations thereof. The Visco, what we call the Voix Bougie, the only, the only US made uh, 70 centimeter 15 French bougie with colored safety depth markers. And I came up with that because like every good dad, you practice on your children. And, and, I, <laughs> and, I, and, and, and I had a mannequin and my son, who's 10, I said, hey, come on, uh, I'm going to show you something and then I want you to do it. And, and I, I took a video of him too. Oh, I, thought, my, I thought you maybe intubated him with the bougie, but this no, is no, a no. different story. <laughs> No, he, I got him to like um, intubate a mannequin. If he if he intubated himself, he would have been on a path to medicine. But uh, <laughs> fortunately, unfortunately, he's not. He, he, he's sort of running running away from that. So he he and his brother, who was age six at the time, uh, got a bougie. They used the like the anterior commissioscope, and he shoved that bougie in. He shoved it all the way down to the hilt. I thought, oh my god, you know, he's like perforated, you know, perforated the lungs and everything. I thought, well, you know, he's ten. But hey, if he if he's doing this, what's the chance that in an emergency somebody else is going to do that? And and I thought, well, maybe we can come up with a bougie which has some colored bands because the dimensions, as you know, like after about ten, was pretty much the same. That you know, at the green, that you stop at the like the front teeth or the gum, and you, you can keep it static. And Paul identified this manufacturer in you know Orange, California, uh, Truer Medical, Cherie and Tim Truer, 
who are really awesome, who, who gave us the time and worked with us to figure out how do you put this type of coloring, which is biocompatible, that can go through the FDA onto a bougie. And, and, and the trick was we use food coloring, which has all been cleared anyway, oh right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So all these products in the United States are class one. And class one means that you can just, as long as it's made in a ISO standard medical manufacturing facility, once you register it with the FDA, you can put it on the market and all the lingoscopes are like that. Uh, you know, once you get to a class three type product, like an implant, you know, vagal nerve stimulator, Inspire, whatever it may be, you, you have to go on a different route and get something called a 510K, the, the biocompatibility, and you have to go through the FDA approval. Uh, and that's, that's a whole different process, a lot more time and significantly more money. So we talked at length about all of this stuff, and it's been incredible. What, what's next for Adroit and, and the Viscope? So things grow organically. And, and you see, that's some silly again. I, I never concentrated on my own people, my, my crew, right? The ENT folks. I, I always thought of the EMS, uh, anesthesia, emergency medicine, you know, here, there, and everywhere. And then one of my ENT colleagues said, hey, we're just using your V-scope for direct laryngoscopy. Did you know that? Uh, why? Why? And he goes, well, we have issues with sterile processing. Sometimes a turnover comes through and pieces are missing, parts are broken. Your deal does everything that we need it to do. And, you know, the cost of like setting this whole setup or buying the metal anterior commissioscope, which is X number of thousand dollars, or even just running down to the emergency room when there's a, an airway issue, it's easier to keep that in my pocket than to like get the whole setup with the light box and everything. And, and run down there. And, and now we're finding a lot of like my ENT colleagues are beginning to see it. A, we deal with airway, of course, but, but two, really busy practices are performing direct laryngoscopy all the time. And, you know, we priced our devices so low that I, I think more than pays for itself if you consider like delays in the operating room, you know, reprocessing, repackaging, all the people that you need down in SSD to sort of put things together. And it's the same thing for the baby V, because you know I know like a lot of folks, and you can tell me you're the expert, uh, Eric, when it comes to the PED side, that you know di diagnostic laryngoscopy, tracheoscopy through a Parsons laryngoscope is what what folks usually use it for, in addition to you know intubation out of the operating room. Yeah, hundred percent. And and you can think about all the difficult airway carts that we have across the hospital, and how much effort it took to get those even at the bedside, and with all of the setup and everything. This is a much more economic and ergonomic way to, to think about it. We're going to move to some rapid fire questions and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Sure. You mentioned a book by Jeffrey Moore. Is there another book that you would recommend people interested in entrepreneurship? And I, I would. And I, I, you know, I should have brought that book up here and I've forgotten his name, but it's um, the, one of the founders of Pixar, Steve Jobs. Um, it's called Creative Inc. And, and I'm, I'm reading that right now, and it is absolutely fantastic. You know, this is a guy that had an engineering degree that had a vision when Walt Disney was talking about how animation was done way back in the day before you watched some Disney show. And, and he wanted to have computer-generated animation, and it took him like 20, 30 years to get to that point. But ultimately, that book is about dealing with people and overcoming their fears, their tribulations, their concerns about self-preservation the fear of technology, technology taking your job. There's all sorts of different things that are applicable to you know what I'm doing. It's like, I, I see that mirroring in a lot of people who become overly defensive about you know, video laryngoscopy as if I'm out there like, you know, 
going to take, take taking their job. Take yeah. it well, you know, th- th- these video laryngoscopy companies, uh, you know, multi-billion-dollar companies. The last thing they're worried about is someone like myself, right? They, they've right. got they've got lots of different things, but you, you can see it because a lot of these folks have made their name, published a lot of papers. They, they're on the speaking circuit, and they they talk about it. And and this, the tragedy, personally, I think, is a lot of them have tapped out. They think, hey, video laryngoscopy is it. We don't really need anything else. And, and, and that goes against every fiber of my being. Because when do you say, okay, I'm going to stop learning now? Okay, this is it. This is the, this is the best thing we're ever going to have. And now I'm done. The day that arrives for me, I, I'm going to like take off back to New Zealand. I was going to say, you check out, right? You check out. And, yeah. uh, but, but there's, but that's, that's the thing when you, you deal with different groups of people and, and you, you want them to sort of come around to your way of thinking. And that creativity ink is, it's really easy read and uh, has a lot of wonderful examples that are, that I think anyone reading it can associate themselves with. That's awesome. The next question is who in the innovation entrepreneur digital health space are you following or interested in following? You know, I, I don't know a lot of people by name, but I, I still have, you know, connections with Mike. Mike was one of the first ENT people to sort of come up with an idea. And, and the one thing that we didn't quite talk about was some of the ideas I came up with at university. And, and one of them was a, um, an oral retractor system for robotic surgery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it didn't, it didn't go very far, unfortunately, for lots of different reasons. But I performed all my tours operations with that because I found the FK retractor like an instrument of torture. If I wanted to extract <laughs> some information and get somebody's pin number, I'm going to shove that into their mouths and you know, ratchet it up. <laughs> and, you know, it's like $50,000 or something silly now. And, and I thought, well, you know, we could do something better than that. And, and, I, and I met with Mike at certain meetings and, and, and things, and uh, we, we, we compared notes. And, and maybe it's something about being from New Zealand. You know, we're completely isolated. We didn't really have too much. You got to make do with what you got. Right. And, and, and I think a lot of people like to think outside of the box. And, and, and I think maybe that's what they call the Kiwi ingenuity, which is like a term that yeah. folks use to, you know, make these makeshift things with number eight wire, which is fencing wire that we, we have all around the country <laughs> to, to put things together. So, so, you know, Mike is someone I've always looked up to. And, um, in fact, when I had that, um, prototype of the, the baby V, I rang him and I said, Hey, man, could you like check this out? He goes, oh, Nilis, you know, people send me stuff all the time. Goes, sure, send it to me. And he, and, he, and he goes up to him, and the day he receives it, he calls me. He goes, man, people send me crap, but yours, yours is actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I thought, that's the validation I need. Thanks, buddy. Well, I'll, I'll get on to the next step now. But, you know, oh, we God. did that with lots of different people, yeah. not just here in the United States or with Mike, but with, you know, other pediatric folks here in Canada and overseas. And you need to do that. Whereas with the V-scope, I didn't. I, I thought, hey, this is a good idea. I'm going to mirror it yeah. and, and I'll just push on. And, you know, I've met other people um, starting up along the healthcare route and people just ring each other, you know, cold. I, I've had a lot of people just email me and say, hey, can we just chat sometime? I've got an idea. And, and I've done the same. Uh, and, you know, as a big name person to follow, uh, you know, I, I suppose I can't really other than the tech people, the tech giants that you feel that you, you, everybody knows. Uh, a lot of the folks uh, are people just like us, Eric. They have the idea and they're just sort of starting off. Yeah. I think I've, I've experienced the same thing where I'll just email somebody who's relatively high up or somebody I admire on LinkedIn and they'll get back to you. It's just, it's such a collegial environment. It's not competitive in any way. And everybody's been really nice in this space. 
connecting to you. How do people connect to you and how do they find out more about Adroit Surgical and the V-Scope? All my details are on LinkedIn. You know, the, the one thing I didn't want to do, and I'll tell you a story, was be on social media. And, and reluctantly, I had to, and I, and I did LinkedIn for a long time. And then I went on that cancer called Twitter, uh, which is absolutely <laughs> terrible. But you, you do get to engage with a, a lot of people in the airway space of different specialties. And uh, I first, you know, was, was coming out with the company and, you know, I'll challenge them a little bit. And, and I got beaten down. They would slap me around because they thought I was just a manufacturer as opposed to like a physician. And then I had to out myself and then I, and I, created this handle and I facetiously called it, you know, airway legend deliberately. <laughs> <laughs> Just sort awesome. of like, because I'm not obviously not an airway legend at all, but I thought, well, let's just pick a, a name that they won't forget in a hurry. And, and, and a lot of it became a lot more collegial and, you know, measured in terms of our conversations. But people are very protective of certain things that are a part of their identity or specialty. And I don't really want to get into that with them. All we do I think is offer an alternative and, and have give them an opportunity to try something different. You know, if if you're waiting around for an ENT person to perhaps, you know, salvage a situation and or cut the neck open and you've never done that before, you know, what's stopping you from doing it? Nothing. Uh, you know, it, it's just it's just the willingness to want to learn something different. Well, Nalish Vasan, thank you so much for being on. It was such a pleasure. Uh, please connect uh, on LinkedIn if you if you if you dare, and Twitter if you dare. Thanks so much for everybody for listening, and we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for the invitation, Eric. It was a pleasure. Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.